Anyway, let's, um, let's start our, um, our studies, or continue our studies, I should say, on the subject of love. And if you've got your um, Bibles open, if you'd like to turn with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 13, we'll just remind ourselves of this very familiar passage. So 1 Corinthians uh, 13. And it says uh, this, And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, when I was... um, teaching, um, I always used to ask my students, you know, why are we bothering to study study this subject? I mean, okay, I know in church this is the Bible and that's what we're supposed to do, but why do you think this um, particular passage is so important that we're going to be spending a whole series talking about? Perhaps you'd just like to turn to your next door neighbor and see if you can work it out. Why is it that we are spending some time talking about and thinking about this passage on love? Any ideas? Why this passage on love? We, we sing so many songs, don't we, about love? You know, there, there are, you know, I don't know how many millions of songs have been written and how many of those are about love. It's probably an enormously high percentage. And yet, why is the world such an unloving place? So the, the first commandment, or the new commandment that Jesus gave. Yeah, so we're very fortunate in that we're not like the, uh, well, first of all, there was 10 commandments and there was over 600, mo- the Mosaic law, um, loads and loads of rules and regulations that governed people's lives. And then it was sort of reduced to um, what does the law require of you to love mercy, to act justly and to walk humbly with your God. So it was reduced a bit in the time of the minor prophets, but still most people obeyed the Mosaic law. So what did Jesus do with it? He just said, this is a new command I give to you, that you love one another. So what we're doing is actually looking at what Paul thought about this first commandment. Any other things? He is the personification of love. So if we're going to spend some time studying love, in some sense we're studying the very nature of God. So very good, yeah. Um, Lucius has picked out an interesting part there, that that the command to love God and love neighbor There's also a little other one that's snuck in there, which is as yourself. We don't perhaps like the idea of self-love. It sounds a bit sort of narcissistic. But, yeah, we are to be happy, if you like, in our own skins. If we're we're sort of happy in our own skins, then we're able to help other people, to love other people. So there is a real sense in which we need to love ourselves. Very good. Any other reasons? Yeah, love God, love others, serve many. 
Yeah, it's our core values. That's why we're spending some time thinking about um, this chapter uh, 13 on love. Another reason. Jesus said that if you love one another, then all men will know that you are my disciples. Because, you see, if we're serious in wanting to see God move in this place, then what we're going to need to do is to demonstrate practically loving one another. So that when people come through these doors, they are struck by the fact that, whoa, here's a group of people, all very different, but they seem to get on amazingly well. Yeah? You only have to look on the television for, you know, to Coronation Street and all these soaps to see the disharmony and the disunity and the backbiting and the moaning. Oh, dear me. And people like to watch that stuff. I can't, I can't get my head around it. But there's enough of that in the world, isn't there? We don't want it in here. And what's more, because of what Jesus has done for us, we don't have to have it in here. Yeah? So that's, if, if we want to see God move in this place, then I believe that we need to take the first commandment or the new commandment, as Jesus taught it, really, really seriously. Okay, so that's the if, the, if you like, the why about why we're studying this. But why did you think Paul write this chapter 13? Did he want to write a passage that they could use in the Corinthian marriage services? said, oh, I think they're a bit short things to, uh, to, to read during marriage ceremonies. I think I'll just pen this little bit about love. Think, they, think that was his reasoning? That was not his intention. Not his intention at all. So, um, Corinthians, there are, we know of two um, uh, letters to the Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, but in fact there were four. Pretty certain there were four. Um, and one and three are missing. Don't know where they've gone. And the reason we know that is because there are questions answered or asked that aren't actually either posed in the well, first or second uh, Corinthians. And so where, where were these questions? Where do they come from? Well, they reckon, the scholars reckon that there were, they were two other letters that were written which don't, didn't survive. So that's why there's a sort of a mismatch where, you know, it says on oh, my former visit. Well, hang on, we haven't heard about your visit. Do you get the idea? There are... There are there are disjoints between the two letters, and therefore we're, scholars are pretty clear that two of those have gone. So Paul's aim was to write a pastoral letter to the church that he'd helped found in about the mid-50s AD. And this church was um, a, a really uh, blossoming church. It had grown from the original sort of Jewish, mainly Jewish believers, to a whole range of Pagans, basically, yeah. So the, Jew, the the Jews and the and the sort of non-Jews, the Gentiles, were very much um, part of this new fellowship, and it was growing rapidly. So there were some good things going on, but there are also some bad things going on. Some very bad things going on. So there was sexual immorality, lawsuits among believers. Confusion and chaos during worship. Disregarding of others when they came to communion, for example, is one that Paul particularly highlights. So there were lots of things that Paul had to call them up on. And one of them was the fact that they were really um, jealous of each other. So some started to follow different preachers. 
Um, some found Paul's teaching hard, so they would go to someone who was a bit easy to understand, etc., etc. And Paul has to call them back and says, hey, it's not me you're following or anyone else for that matter. It's Jesus who you are following. And this particular passage comes bang smack in between chapters dealing with spiritual gifts because they envied each other. They could see all these wonderful things that were going on and it's interesting to note that God was still blessing them even though they were doing quite a lot of things that weren't right, which again is a bit sort of difficult to understand. Why did God still bless them when they clearly were doing things that were not right? But Paul knew that God wouldn't keep on going on blessing them if they didn't start to change their ways. And so they were envious about other people's gifts. So why can't I be like so-and-so who's got this gift? Why can't I have that gift? So Paul has to do some teaching about that to correct their misunderstandings about where spiritual gifts come from and what they're used for. And this chapter 13 slots directly into there. And my job today is to try and tell you about love being patient. Patient. And the word that's um, used for for patience can be translated in a couple of different ways. It could be slow to anger, or it could be long-suffering. Each would be uh, translations that you could put into that particular uh, slot there of love is patient. Okay, so we're talking about that in particular this morning, that love is patient or slow to anger. Anger is quite a difficult sort of subject. It's been much in the writings. If you've been following any sort of, you know, what goes on in sort of church circles, then anger has been one of those subjects that has come up quite a lot of the time. And the New Testament has sort of described three types of anger. Um, The first one is a sort of a righteous anger. And this is the one that people have a bit of trouble with because they think, well, if God is love, then how can he also be angry? And they, they point to passages in the Old Testament about how God appears to tell um, various people in the, uh, in the Old Testament to go and kill people because they are doing things wrong, primarily. A bit difficult. But then hang on a minute. If God wasn't angry at people who do child sex trafficking and all the rest of it, wouldn't that make him a rather ungodly God? Isn't it right to get angry about those sorts of things? Aren't we also as guilty as the perpetrators if we just turn a blind eye or wink at all those sorts of things that go on? If God gets upset about seeing people who have been made in his image being despicably used like that, what sort of God is he? And if we get upset about it, how much more do you think God would get upset about it and angry about it? So we've got to face the fact that anger exists and it can be righteous. It can be righteous. Now I'm reminded of um, a story of of a minister who stood up in front of his congregation and he said... Do you know that there are, I come up with the figures now, X hundred thousand children die every day of preventable diseases? And no one blooming well cares. So he didn't say blooming well, he used a four letter word. 
in church. Shock horror. And then he said, how many of you are angry that I just swore in church rather than the fact that all these children are dying? See where I'm coming from? So it is right, it's okay to be angry, um, righteous anger. But our anger, is our anger righteous? Well, I'm just trying to think back to the last time someone cut me up at a filter. Um, what did I say? Um, yeah, hmm, perhaps not. Yeah, we get angry about all sorts of things, don't we, which are not really that important. When we, get, we feel our feelings have been hurt or you know, we're perhaps insecure or whatever it may be, Someone says something that we find offensive, well, we take as being offensive, and suddenly we're all angry. All this self-righteous anger wells up. Oh, they shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have said this. You know. How many times have we heard that? We take offense at the silliest and smallest of things. It's blown up out of all proportion. Not righteous anger. Yeah, it says probably more about us than it does about anything else, about the particular thing that's happened to us. So righteous anger is one of them. Another one that the New Testament describes is something called bitterness. Bitterness is where we harbor anger over a long period of time, and it actually starts to change us. Yeah, we, we let those, that things, those things that have angered us fester and ferment in our hearts, and it makes our lives a misery, and same with all the people who we come into contact with. Yeah, bitterness, it can have a paralyzing effect on us. It can make us hard-hearted. So that's bitterness. And then there's the last time, which is like rage. Yeah, the red mist descends. And we react possibly violently, certainly violently verbally, but maybe even physically. Yeah, where the red mist descends and we feel absolute rage. And that's the anger that we are told to rid ourselves. Yeah, there are several um, passages, Paul writes again in Philippians and in Colossians, about ridding ourselves of that sort of anger. The bitterness, we're told to not let that take root by not letting the sun go down on our anger in, in Ephesians. Yeah, so there, there are coping mechanisms that the Bible gives us to how to cope with all this anger that we have inside us. And it's up to us. It says, rid yourself. So it's, it's, you know, we're not going to suddenly a magic wand's going to be waved and suddenly we're going to be not angry anymore. We've actually got to do that. It says, rid yourself. Rid yourself of anger. The other translation, as I think I mentioned earlier, was this idea of long-suffering. If we are genuinely going to love one another, we're going to have to overlook each other's faults and, hey, I know I've got a lot, so, you know, Please forgive my and overlook my for shortcomings, but we need to do that for everyone. 
not to take offense, but to be long-suffering. Because, do you know, if you're going to love properly, fully, then you're going to be hurt. Yeah, it's all part of the deal, I'm afraid. How many of us have been hurt in love? I'm not just talking about boyfriends and girlfriends and partners and so forth. Long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. It makes no, takes no records of wrongs. Another thing that Paul says. So there's a real sense in which there's hurt and pain associated with love. Now, if we've suffered in love, how much more do you think Jesus has suffered? Did he, was he not rejected by his friends? Did they not desert him at his darkest hour? You only have to read the gospel accounts to know that Jesus was despairing. He, you know, he cried over Jerusalem. His disciples kept on misunderstanding. They kept on siding, in effect, with the, with the Pharisees. And Jesus was, if you read the Gospels carefully, was increasingly alone. Even though he was surrounded by his disciples, they didn't understand what he was about. And that misunderstanding led to distance. Pain. And then you've got the added dimension that Jesus actually came to die for the world. Certainly he came to die for the whole of the Jewish nation and they rejected him. But he came and died for the sins of the world. And we all, at some stage or other, have rejected him. So there is love. And there is also pain associated with that love. Suffering. So that's why Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Should we like the first part of that verse? That, the first part sounds really good. The power of his resurrection. Yes, we, we like all that. But it's the fellowship of his sufferings that perhaps we find more difficult. Because if we're going to be fully like Jesus, then we're going to know how, need to know how to suffer. Of, um, one of the people who uh, we were recommended to to read when I was at, um, doing my studies was a guy called Henry Nouwen. Anyone heard of Henry Nouwen? So Henry Nouwen was um, a Dutch Catholic priest who had a, quite a big training um, ministry, wrote books, and he became um, a pastor of a Labrie Fellowship, which is in Toronto, Canada. Um, and that, um, that ministry looks after people with mental illness, mental um, disability, and it was about the time when he um, moved. Um, he just suffered a, a real breach in a real, re really close friendship, and it devastated him. He couldn't. He couldn't do the stuff. He had to sort of go on a, on a, like a retreat to try and get his head back together. He had a real crisis of faith because of the rejection that he'd felt from this breach of this relationship that he had, and. 
he had to sort of, um, he had a couple of um, people who would, uh, would minister to him, would, would talk to him day by day. He, you know, he was, I th- think saying he was suicidal is not too far from the truth. He didn't want to be around anymore. He thought himself a total waste of time. Of, he was a failure. All that he'd held true was being challenged. And so he wrote himself a journal. And um, some years later, he was encouraged uh, to write it. And um, this is one that he wrote, um, I suppose, halfway through that sort of period. And it's called Love Deeply. Do not hesitate to love and to love deeply. You might be afraid of the pain that deep love can cause. When those you love deeply reject you, leave you or die, your heart will be broken. But that should not hold you back from loving deeply. The pain that comes from deep love makes your love ever more fruitful. It is like a plough that breaks the ground to allow the seed to take root and grow into a strong plant. Every time you experience the pain of rejection, absence or death, you're faced with a choice. You can become bitter and decide not to love again. Or you can stand straight in your pain and let the soil on which you stand become richer and more able to give life to new seeds. The more you have loved and have allowed yourself to suffer because of your love, the more you will be able to let your heart grow wider and deeper. When your love is truly giving and and receiving, those whom you love will not leave your heart even when they depart from you. They will become part of yourself and thus gradually build a community within you. Those you have deeply loved become part of you. The longer you live, there will always be more people to be loved by you and to become part of your inner community. The wider your inner community becomes, the more easily you will recognize your own brothers and sisters in the strangers around you. Those who are alive within you will recognize those who are alive around you. The wider the community of your heart, the wider the community around you. Thus the pain of rejection, absence and death can become fruitful. Yes, as you love deeply, the ground of your heart will be broken more and more but you will rejoice in the abundance of the fruit it will bear. Now, I guess some of you who perhaps haven't loved like that may not actually understand a word that's being being saying. Sometimes you actually have to experience a few things before you can really relate to them. But Henry Nouwen came through that. And God used him mightily in that community in Labrie. Yeah, it was a triumph, if you like, of God's grace in that man's life because he knew what it was like to love like Jesus loves. And until we allow ourselves, if you like, to, yes, the possibility of rejection and pain, then we won't know what that love really looks like. That love that can actually be rejected. Difficult, isn't it? Hard. And yet Nouwen's experience was that 
it brought him enormous fruit. But God did not allow that pain and suffering that he went through to be wasted. It was used. And God blessed that man and all the people who came into contact with him because of what he'd been through.